Welcome to Charity Village Connects. I'm your host, Mary Barrel. That's the sound of a hummingbird pollinating our world and making it a better place. The hummingbird is Charity Village's logo because we strive, like the industrious hummingbird, to make connections across the nonprofit sector and help make positive change. Over this series of podcasts, we'll explore topics that are vital to the nonprofit sector in Canada. Topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, mental health in the workplace, the gap in female representation in leadership, and many other subjects crucial to the sector. We'll offer insight that will help you make sense of your life as a nonprofit professional, make connections to help navigate challenges, and support your organization to deliver on its mission. In our first episode, we explored how COVID-19 forced organizations to make a massive transformation from their traditional fundraising, like in-person events and galas, to embrace virtual fundraising tools such as crowdfunding, micro-donations, and virtual events. In this episode, we'll explore the dramatic shifts that are taking place in Canadian nonprofit funding models and revenue sources. The pandemic has challenged organizations to build more resilience by creating new and diverse revenue streams. We'll explore the revenue-generating potential of new funding models like social enterprise, so-called patient loans with flexible repayment terms for nonprofits, and what's known as impact investing, where community impact, not profit, is the main priority. We'll look at the risks and rewards the chilling effect of the We Charity scandal on nonprofit organizations' willingness to embrace these new models, even while it impacted public trust in charities. We'll also explore how these alternative revenue streams can help support administrative costs, capacity building, and social innovation. And we'll touch on some proposed legislation that could permanently alter nonprofit governance and transparency. To investigate both the challenges and possible solutions for nonprofit growth, we'll talk with experts from across the sector. I would say nonprofits and charities think about financial resiliency all the time. All the time. They think about how do I keep my staff? How do I pay my rent? How do I service growing needs? Social enterprise is a way for them to use a business model to help create a more self-sustaining type of structure and model for them so they don't have to be so reliant on these grants or philanthropy type of funding. We're trying to scale and have the ability to scale to support a national infrastructure and none of that would have been possible if we didn't have the underlying social enterprise infrastructure. The biggest risk when you're doing a social enterprise is the same risk when you're just running a business in the normal course, which is that you might put a lot of effort, a lot of capital into it, and you fail. That's the biggest risk. You can't have the same governor sitting on the charity and the enterprise and the revenue generating arm of the business. You need some clarity. You need some guardrails. You need some governance, authenticity, and integrity. Think back to the first year of COVID-19. An often heard phrase during those early months of the pandemic was, when things get back to normal. 
In other words, once the virus goes away, we'll go back to our offices and the usual way of doing business. By the time the pandemic had reached the two-year mark, however, these assumptions had all but disappeared. Today, it's impossible not to see the pandemic's lasting impact in almost everything we do. And inflation, global conflicts, supply chain crises, and COVID-related job losses and nonprofit closures have all added a layer of economic uncertainty that was unthinkable not so long ago. Charities across Canada say they're facing an unprecedented challenge with COVID-19, with cancelled food drives and fundraisers, and in some cases a drop in donations and a shortage of volunteers. COVID-19 has put marathons on hold, along with bike races, gala fundraisers and other events that make money for charitable health organizations. We've had seen significant impact. We're in a tricky position in that we operate a social enterprise that generates revenues to support some of our work. So once the pandemic hit, that revenue disappeared completely. It's been widely recognized that the nonprofit sector bore the brunt of many of the economic burdens that hit Canadians during the pandemic, even while demands for their services increased. In August 2021, Imagine Canada reported that over four in 10 charities were facing declines in revenue. More than half of these organizations were looking at revenue shortfalls of more than 40%. Much of this decline can be attributed to COVID-19 and its effects on everything from donations and fundraising events to shutdowns and staffing. For Christy Brevet of Scale Collaborative, the pandemic has exposed the need for nonprofits to examine their operations from top to bottom and build financial resiliency by diversifying their revenue sources. But to do that, Christie says many organizations will also have to transform their culture and mindset. I would say nonprofits and charities think about financial resiliency all the time. All the time. They think about how do I keep my staff? How do I pay my rent? How do I service growing needs? There may be a resistance in culture internally inside of nonprofits and externally in our society as whether nonprofits and charities have the right to be able to come from that place of abundance, to have good buildings, to have really good laptops, to pay their staff really good wages with benefits. So I think there's a resistance in that piece and that's a shifting of culture that needs to take place and is taking place. Part of that shifting culture in the sector is the realization of the pressing need to find new revenue streams outside of traditional forms of fundraising. Terms like social enterprise and impact investing are becoming increasingly common language in nonprofit boardrooms across the country. We asked Elisa Birnbaum, co-founder, publisher, and editor-in-chief of Sea Change magazine, to talk about entrepreneurial for-profit activities that have a social mission at their core. Social enterprise specifically has come into play for a lot of these organizations, and that's the reason I focus more on them. I feel like a lot of the other stuff has dried up, government grants, not that they're not there and they are, but over the years, I've noticed they've just become less and less what's available and everyone's sort of competing for the same funds. Social enterprise is a way for them to use a business model to help create a more self-sustaining type of structure and model for them so they don't have to be so reliant on these grants or philanthropy type of funding. 
which is very, very difficult. It doesn't mean to say that they won't be still looking upon grants and other types of revenue streams because social enterprise has its own challenges and it's hard too. So you kind of have to, I think, diversify as much as possible. So where do these new diversified sources of revenue and for-profit ventures sit in a nonprofit's framework? Here's Christy Reve to explain. If you look at nonprofits and charities, they can make revenue three ways. One is through philanthropy, one is through government, and one is through earned revenue. And of those three, earned revenue is the one that allows them to have control of how they're able to interact with community and how they're able to service impact. So if we look at that earned revenue stream in thriving nonprofits, how do you put enterprising strategies into your traditional strategies like grants, donations, and events? How do you look at fee-for-service? And what we see is that sometimes organizations are actually able to amplify their impact when they're able to utilize their grants to service specific community members and actually charge a fee-for-service on some of their programs and initiatives. We see social enterprise that could be inside an organization or that could be outside where the nonprofit owns that entity. We see partnerships and that's really going above and beyond the, hi, can I get $5,000 for my sponsorship to really looking into what does that deep partnership look like for money and other things It might be distribution opportunities. It could be many other things that nonprofits can have with other nonprofits with business and corporations, and with high net worth individuals. One of the challenges for nonprofit leadership seeking to broaden their funding base is to first define what terms like social enterprise mean. Investopedia.com describes these initiatives as a business with specific social objectives that serve its primary purpose. Social enterprises seek to maximize profits while maximizing benefits to society and the environment, and the profits are principally used to fund social programs. Investopedia goes on to say that, unlike a charity, social enterprises pursue endeavors that generate revenues which fund their social causes. It's a tidy definition. But in everyday parlance, social enterprise is a somewhat nebulous and broad term, as social enterprises can take many forms. A for-profit business can be operated within a charity, if it complies with its charitable objects, or can be operated outside the charity or nonprofit corporation and simply owned by the nonprofit organization. Or it can be a hybrid model of a standalone for-profit business with a social impact mandate, such as BC's community contribution companies or Nova Scotia's community interest companies. For this podcast episode dedicated to the nonprofit sector, when we refer to social enterprise, we're talking about when charities or nonprofits utilize for-profit business strategies to diversify their revenue sources. An example of a successful model used by a registered charity is Furniture Bank. On the surface, this charity works much like a commercial disposal or junker service. For a fee, they'll come to your home and remove unwanted furniture and housewares. But instead of hauling all those old couches and beds off to the local landfill, Furniture Bank donates them to low-income individuals and families. 
The aim is to provide the comfort, dignity, and stability that comes with having a furnished home. Dan Kershoff, Furniture Bank's executive director, told us more about how this form of social enterprise works. We all talk about that we have a homelessness crisis, and we all hear that we need more housing as a solution. But having an empty house doesn't actually solve homelessness, and that's where organizations like ourselves have come into being. We sit at that intersection between somebody able to secure empty housing coming out of some form of crisis, they secure housing, they need the beds, the sofas, appliances, anything that we all enjoy today. So our mission is very simple, is to maximize the number of families that we can support getting into a furnished, established home. For Dan, a social enterprise, like any business, needs to have a clear sense of what they can offer potential customers or how they can fulfill a need or solve a problem in the marketplace. The whole spirit behind social enterprise is you're providing a service or product that's meeting a need in the market. So here in Toronto, we have 30 different for-profit junking companies, and they will charge you a hefty sum to get the same sofa we'll come and get. The difference is they'll run it to the closest landfill transfer station and destroy it. Our model was simply to compete at the same performance level as a junker but to provide all the associated benefits. If you called today and you were downsizing a whole home or an apartment or whatever you have that's in a home, we would be taking that information, arriving at a quote, and that quote would be no different than what you pay a junker. And what we're trying to do is give the market an opportunity to have a socially and environmentally responsible alternative to destroying perfectly good things. So the benefit to the customer is yes, they are paying a market fee, but they save on the tax. There's no HST. They get a charitable tax receipt for the donated goods. And the proceeds of those help offset the costs of doing deliveries to the families that we're supporting. So this is not small potatoes. It is complex. It is its own ecosystem of responsibilities and accountabilities. But it is quite transformational in terms of what the capacity of the charity can do. So we started as a volunteer helping a few hundred families every given year. Now we're helping 3,000 families. We're trying to scale and have the ability to scale to support a national infrastructure. And none of that would have been possible if we didn't have the underlying social enterprise infrastructure. As with any business venture, alternative revenue streams come with risks attached especially for a charity. According to Mark Bloomberg, a lawyer who advises nonprofits and registered charities, one of the first steps along this path is to acknowledge these risks and to ensure that if you run a social enterprise within your charity, the operations are consistent with your charitable objects or that you set up an appropriate for-profit structure that is owned by the charity. But either way... Legal compliance and regulation are critical considerations. The biggest risk when you're doing a social enterprise is the same risk when you're just running a business in the normal course, which is that you might put a lot of effort, a lot of capital into it, and you fail. That's the biggest risk, I would say. The next thing is, if you're running it through a charity, you don't need to run it through a charity. Sometimes it can be run through a for-profit that's owned by the charity. You get into charity regulatory things. There are rules around what sort of social enterprises and even the word social enterprise is not a charity law word. So what are you actually doing? And is it a related business or not? 
If it got really big, it might be that it isn't any longer a related business or if it's not related to your objects. So you need to look at your objects and work out what they are. In some cases, you may need to expand your objects to be able to do the social enterprise that you want to do. The main risks I would see as the risk of it not achieving what you want, either in terms of resources or other benefits that you see. And then the secondary risk would be the legal compliance type risks that one can have. But also being a charity is very competitive, right? Lots of charities, especially in some areas. But being a business in some areas can also be very competitive as well. So I just think that one has to have a balanced view, a tremendous risk, but it can be very good for a charity to have a social enterprise. In addition to the business and legal risks, social enterprises are not bulletproof against unexpected events or disasters. Like many for-profit businesses across Canada, many social enterprises operated or owned by nonprofits were hit hard by the pandemic and the repeated lockdowns and restrictions, depending on their business model and their products and services. We're projecting the revenues would decline by $9.5 billion, and we're also projecting about 117,000 jobs lost through layoffs, and that's the best case scenario. The Cancer Society projects donations have dropped off by about 40% this year during the pandemic, which would work out to a monetary loss of about $80 million. Social enterprises are not immune from market risk or volatile conditions, but one way to help cushion the blow is to ensure you have business-savvy talent as part of your team. Embracing new revenue streams like social enterprise will require nonprofits to look at themselves in a new light. Can the right business skills be found in-house, or will additional financial and management expertise be needed? And more fundamentally, is the organization ready to scale up if more infrastructure is required to run these additional operations? Dan Kershaw of Furniture Bank was headhunted from the for-profit sector to lead the social enterprise that now makes up 80% of the charity's total income. Before setting the social enterprise wheels in motion in your organization, Dan Kershaw has some thoughts about the kinds of outside expertise a nonprofit should first tap into. When you start to do this social enterprise as an intentional, ongoing activity, no different than others, you'll want to engage lawyers to make sure you're structured properly. Most organizations, when they get serious of the social enterprise, will end up creating as a separate organization that is linked to the charitable and nonprofit entity. Depending on your charity objects, it may line up that it is appropriate to keep it within your legal entity. But again, that's where accounting professionals and lawyers can help guide you. May it please your excellency. On the legislative side, we talked to Senator Ratna Omidvar about her work with the Special Senate Committee on the Charitable Sector. More specifically, what the resulting report recommended in terms of supporting charities to pursue other forms of revenue, including social enterprise and for-profit businesses operated and owned by the charities. We had a lot of witnesses talk about the constraints that charities face when raising money through business ventures. And there's pros and cons to this argument. But in the end, we thought it was wise to open up this Pandora's box, if I may call it that. And we asked that the CRA 
provide greater clarity on what is a related business because right now a charity can carry on a business if it's directly related to its mission like museums running museum shops and hospitals running gift shops but what happens when a charity becomes a developer because it owns a piece of property is that a related business or non-related business so i think charities need some clarity in addition because every source of revenue is declining for charities and the only source of revenue that could be a potential game changer is business revenue we also asked the CRA to conduct a pilot project to assess the viability of granting registered charities greater latitude in raising money as long as and this is important as long as the revenue is used to advance charitable purpose this is what in legalese is called a destination of funds test so the cra could launch a pilot and say we are allowing x number of charities or x number of business related activities we're going to monitor whether the revenue really goes to further the charitable purpose and then you'd gain some knowledge and you'd have an evidence base so we thought that was important but i will say that this recommendation is a hotly contestable one and it's contested obviously from businesses themselves i mean they would argue that charities already receive a tax benefit because the charitable dollar is non-taxable and that charitably exempt dollars should not be used to compete with business activities in the private sector so there are shades of gray here New revenue-generating opportunities may require not only structural changes for an organization and potential regulatory changes, but also changes in attitude, as Christy Reve of Scale Collaborative explains. I would say that they need to really be at that place of open to learning. What does it look like to bring entrepreneurial thinking? into an organization and have a board that is open to looking away from risk as a bad thing, but go into a place of risk as mitigation. And how do you mitigate against risk and take opportunities? It's that same comparison between a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. There's this shift in thinking that things are learnable, they have clear impact goals, they have a board that might be open to looking at how do we service our community and create the impact that we want in different ways. There's a culture that happens in an organization. Staff may suggest ideas, they can try it. You know, failure could be part of that process. They test and pilot quickly, they learn. And so they're able to really bring that culture into the organization. Christie's comments on the fundamental importance of nonprofit leaders to develop a more open mindset towards embracing new revenue generating opportunities are echoed by Dan Kershaw of Furniture Bank. It starts with mindset. We were fortunate at the time to have a board and some staff who had the mindset that it is possible because you can say let's start a social enterprise in my charity or nonprofit and you will have lots of people lining up to say no if you flip it around and you have a board member that said yes we could if this was possible it changes the mindset of staff management and the board to start exploring what are the preconditions to be able to start we were fortunate to get some support and training and exposure to this whole idea of running a business within the charity 
and it has its own skill sets. But personally, I feel it's an imperative for the sector that we are looking at a situation where if fundraising drops 30% or government funding drops 30% or there's a giant recession or there's a whole bunch of disruptions to the system, we watched the last two years of COVID dramatically impact a sector. A social enterprise for us provides a level of stability, a lot of flexibility to be able to respond to some of the opportunities. So I very much feel that absolutely charities and nonprofits can start their own social enterprises because you start small. The whole idea is not to race to the equivalent of 10 trucks of expense and complexity. It's to start with your first customer and then your next 10 customers and then your next 100 customers and move at the pace your organization is able to absorb it. You have to want to open yourself up and to experiment with it. But once that mindset takes root, then suddenly it becomes a bit of a flywheel and suddenly it's not you saying, we need to do this. It's your staff saying, can we do this? Or we've already done this and here are our results. And that suddenly creates a momentum to create new opportunities. It becomes, I don't think I work in a charity. I think I work in a startup. I just happen to be a social profit versus for-profit. Although the United Kingdom and the United States have been pushing forward as global leaders in legal innovation to support social entrepreneurship, Canada has lagged behind. In fact, Canada's federal legislation does not currently provide a straightforward option for social entrepreneurs. Some provinces, such as BC and Nova Scotia, have led the way with enacting legislation that provides corporate legal structures for social enterprises. In BC, they're called community contribution companies. In Nova Scotia, community interest companies. For Elisa Birnbaum of Sea Change magazine, one of the challenges for nonprofits looking to pivot into the entrepreneurial space is a lack of provincial guidelines and legal structures. This is something she'd like to see changed. Some would say that there should be better legal structures and kind of accepting and appreciating what a social enterprise is. Right now, it's nebulous. No other provinces really have a set definition of policy and legislative definitions that can help them establish a social enterprise with some kind of structure, whether it's tax-related or otherwise. So I think that kind of structure would be very helpful. And I think that comes into play sometimes with social enterprises or people who want to start a social enterprise but don't have a structure that can sort of guide them or any kind of policy or legislative framework that can guide them in any way. And I think that makes it very difficult. So I think there has to be more of an acceptance overall that these organizations can not only make a social and environmental impact, but they can actually bring in revenue and they're hiring people and they're doing all kinds of things that we should all be supporting in society and community. And and social enterprises need to have someone in place who understands business because this really is quite unlike other things that they're doing. Not that they're not doing amazing, amazing work that most of us would never be able to achieve, myself included, but it is a bit of a different beast running a business just to make sure you're sustainable to have as much support on the ground as possible. A concern for some nonprofits and charities might be the challenges of having to scale up their administrative and support staff in order to successfully manage these new for-profit initiatives. Lawyer Mark Bloomberg has some thoughts on that. I would say having low admin actually 
can create problems for you because people will be wondering what's going on. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not possible because you might just have some generous for-profit company who just pays for everything on the side. And we do see some foundations, for example, giving away money who have no admin costs. How can they do it? Well, because someone pays for it. It's not magic, right? But if you're a self-sustaining organization and you're not covering off the things, because we know you can save money on admin by getting rid of financial controls and by just having less finance staff and uh, not getting accounting uh, help and not doing an audit by not being transparent, not worrying about putting up stuff on a website. So you can save some money, but then there's huge costs down the road. But I think that also comes down to making sure you've got a good board with people who understand the importance of having this infrastructure within the organization. We've heard our experts describe how shifting from a traditional nonprofit culture to a growth mindset is fundamental to embracing new ways of generating revenues. One of these new approaches is tapping into something called impact investing. Christy Reve of Scale Collaborative is the partnership lead with the Thrive Impact Fund, in which impact investors help finance social enterprise companies, nonprofits, charities, or cooperatives that have a revenue stream or an asset to generate income, with the goal of generating growth and scaling the impact. Impact investors at the fund choose the organizations that they invest in based on their commitment to social good, rather than the usual focus of for-profit investors on maximizing their financial return on investment. The Thrive Impact Fund provides flexible loans at more favorable rates than banks and credit unions with more generous repayment terms to help social enterprises grow while earning more modest financial returns for themselves. All of our investors are looking for impact. So they're actually looking at how do they stretch their granting dollars further and have more impact. The other way is that some investors are really looking to utilize their capital to make change. And so they are looking for that really high impact driven, but they're looking for a modest return. What I feel that is happening is that people really want to put their money for good. And they're noticing that if they can go into a true impact investment fund, then they're able to sort of make the change they want to see in their backyard. For Thrive Impact Fund, it's an evergreen fund. So that means it sits in community in perpetuity. So let's say you put in 250000 If you see that in an evergreen fund, it continues to recycle into community. It's paid back, then it recycles back into community. Whereas a grant or donation would be a one-time gift, this can actually have multiple effects that continue to give to community over and over again. We really tailor the loan for what the organization actually needs at the time. We really work with each organization. So what they need is patient, flexible capital. And so they might need not to have to do only interest-only payments for the first six months or not to have any payments that are due in those first four months. So they can get to the place that whatever that initiative is, is cash flowing well so that they're able to then have no worries around payback. We also asked Christy for an example of how the Thrive Impact Fund could offer solutions and why nonprofits would seek out this form of financing. As an executive director of a nonprofit organization, we had an amazing opportunity to be able to purchase three city lots in our community, which don't come up very often. And they were attached to five city lots that weren't being used. So the community had a vision for an amazing shared model, affordable housing, shared services, a real community hub. 
So at that point, we really were excited and we wanted to invest, but the buildings on those spots had to be demolished and put back up because the foundation was old and you couldn't have children and things like that in there. So we needed somebody to give us a year and say, you don't have to pay anything back. And it was for $200,000. That's all we were looking for at that time. And if you think about that kind of a project, that is such a small amount of dollars, but we couldn't pay the debt back from a traditional loaner immediately. And we were unable to find a bank or a credit union that was interested in participating in that. And we even went to some of our funders and said, look at this is like a massive opportunity for community. We need to take it. And they agreed, but they didn't have the resources to be able to support that patient capital. So the Thrive Impact Investment Fund really looks at what is that period of time that you need to be able to have that capital to be patient and flexible. Those kind of different tools like revenue-based financing might mean that you get to wait a bit of a time and then once you're in success, you can do a payout. So it's just looking at things just a little differently. The House Ethics Committee spent months investigating the WE charity controversy, focusing on the Trudeau family's connections to the charity. We're devoting an extensive part of our newscast to a political scandal that's consumed the summer and now led to the collapse of Canada's largest children's charity. Have either of you been contacted by the RCMP? We've previously spoken on this question. No, you haven't. You said you haven't been contacted about Mr. Angus's letter. Have you been contacted by the RCMP for any other purpose? Yes or no? We all recognize that there are times when the best way for a charity to pursue its charitable purpose is to work through non-charities, such as not-for-profit groups, social enterprises, co-ops, civil society groups, even businesses and others who are on the ground and may well be the best partner for the charity to achieve its impact. To say that recent years have been challenging for nonprofits would be an understatement. Those organizations already feeling the financial pressures brought on by COVID-19 were soon facing another storm cloud on the horizon. The scandal surrounding we Charity, and the nonprofit's relationship with its for-profit ventures. And yet, the pandemic years have also produced a promising way forward in the shape of Bill S-216, also known as the Effective and Accountable Charities Act. The proponent of this bill, Senator Ratna Omutvar, has said that this legislation will remove a significant hindrance and reams of red tape that result in inefficiencies legal expenses, and power imbalances for charities, both domestically and internationally. We'll look at Bill 216 in greater detail in our next episode. However, we wanted to hear from our guests about the impact and possible chilling effect of the We Charity scandal on nonprofits considering seeking new sources of revenue. Elisa Birnbaum of Sea Change Magazine believes the We Charity's governance issues and its structure in relation to its for-profit companies doesn't reflect the vast majority of social enterprises in Canada. Definitely were some issues with governance and other things. There's no question there were issues that should not have happened. But I saw some great work on the ground and I spoke to some people who really appreciated their help and support. That's the first thing I would say is that there's two ways of looking at it. 
The other thing that I would say is that there's a very complicated model. I think of the average social enterprise out there is not even a tenth as complicated. And it's much easier to see a transparent measurement of impact, transparent understanding of what they're about, what they're doing, where the money's going. I think if anything, social enterprises have learned even more how important it is to be transparent and to be open and to show on their website exactly where their money is going. I also think people understand that the MeWe model was not a typical model. It was a very convoluted type of model, and that's not the average social enterprise in Canada. So hopefully that's not going to be much of a deterrent. For lawyer Mark Bloomberg, the We Charity scandal exposed many issues with governance and transparency in the nonprofit sector. But it also caused a confusion in the sector about what a charitable organization can do with an existing law by not truly understanding how uniquely Byzantine the We Charity structure was. And I also think a lot of groups learn the wrong lessons from a scandal. I've seen people say, oh, you know what the lesson of WE was, was you can't have more than one entity. You know, you can only have a charity and you shouldn't have a for-profit or you shouldn't have this. No, we had 20 or 30 or 40 different entities. The chair of WE didn't even know about half the entities. Yeah, that's a problem. But if you're a charity and you want to do some sort of business activity that doesn't fit within the definition that CRA has of related business, then I would say set up a for-profit and you can do it. You know, if you want to have a nonprofit that can do all sorts of things where you don't have charity regulation. Now, you can't just take money from the charity and put it in the nonprofit and then it's no longer charitable money. But a lot of money doesn't need to go into the charity. A government agency can give the money to the nonprofit. A business can give it to the nonprofit. And even if we could get a few percent of some organization's revenue going into those entities, it could be good. So I think people learn the wrong things from we sometimes. Christy Reve of Scale Collaborative hopes that the intense media scrutiny on We Charity won't color the entire sector. You know, if we look at every sector, there are going to be people who follow the rules and there are going to be some people that don't follow the rules. But we always advise our organizations really to make sure that their structure and that their activities really fall within the CRA guidelines. We work with so many organizations and nonprofits that are doing really, really great projects and really great work. And they're really looking for a way to resource that work. And the WE scandal is a real anomaly in the sector. So I really hope that society and organizations don't shy away from it if it's the right strategy for them and really look at it. We are talking about a sector that's 8% of our GDP. It's a big sector. For Senator Ratna Omidvar, the We Charity scandal had a chilling effect on public trust and charities' willingness to risk exploring alternative sources of revenue. It initially caused her to worry about the chances for her Bill 216 and the loosening of restrictions for charities working with non-charitable organizations that it recommends. I think it definitely had a dampening effect. I know that when I wanted to table my legislation on charities, I held back, hoping that the storm would blow over. I think it definitely had an impact because of the particular governance fog, let me put it that way, around the We Charity and the We To Me and all their various, you know, there was a fog around it. And the fog was a governance fog. That's my own conclusion. And so the public was not able to see through the fog. 
I think it was a difficult time for charities, but events, as Sir Winston Churchill said, events move everything. And I think during the COVID crisis, Canadians saw and appreciated how necessary and imperative the work of the charitable and not-for-profit sector is and was in keeping them safe. On a more positive note, the senator also says that the pandemic made Canadians much more aware of the important role played by charitable activities. Who was there picking up the beds? Who was there helping women get into shelters? When the stay-at-home lockdown made the context impossible for them, who was it who was helping kids with mental health? When their mental health took a severe beating over the two years of the lockdown, who was it who was looking after their food security? When you think of all these things, Canadians saw in a brilliant way, if I may use that, that the charitable sector and the not-for-profit sector are the veritable glue that held us together. So I think the narrative shifted again a little bit. Time will tell. The We Charity scandal may also help bring about important reforms in how nonprofits govern themselves, especially those looking to expand into social enterprises. I would say when charities choose to have one or two or three organizations that are similar and correlated, they need to have governance parameters, no mixing of governors, as I would say, you know, you can't have the same governor sitting on the charity and the enterprise and the revenue generating arm of the business, you need some clarity, you need some guardrails, you need some governance, authenticity and integrity. As part of the governance of any nonprofit initiating new revenue generating opportunities and wanting to avoid common pitfalls and risk, Dan Kershaw of Furniture Bank thinks many organizations should consider looking beyond the sector for critical resources and talent. The goal, he says, is to build success and safeguard the future growth of revenue generating initiatives by helping their organizations thrive and scale their impact. If you're an executive director and you don't have business background, I would make sure that your next hire coming in at that next level has business experience. You make sure you actively ask the board to recruit board members with that business background to support you. They would be facilitating creating the conditions that that new division could start. They aren't expected to become experts in marketing and CRM and all the millions of things I could ramble on about, but they are expected to create the conditions that it might bloom. So the board can support when you hire new people, try and layer in skill sets that you would find in business. I went to my 25th MBA reunion and I'm like, I don't want to go. I just run a charity. I've got people who run real banks. And it was most fascinating that I had most people hanging out with me going, you run a charity? That's so cool. I wish I could do that. So there are lots of opportunities to pick up skills from the for-profit space and bring them into this sector. And if you can demonstrate the impact that you have as a charity, it becomes very easy to get some really good skill sets into the culture of your organization. In the conversations I had with my guests for this episode, the topic of nonprofit leadership came up often. As many organizations begin exploring or growing alternative revenue streams, 
questions will need to be asked about the readiness of nonprofits to embrace these opportunities. Are the necessary skill sets in place? Do you need to recruit outside expertise? Will these ventures align with your mission? And how will you navigate the important governance and transparency issues and scale impact while diversifying and growing revenues? We hope this episode has provided some ideas and considerations as nonprofits continue to adapt to the changing world around them. Check our show notes and our website for links to resources to help you explore these and other topics. I want to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their valuable insights into some of the risks and benefits of new revenue sources for nonprofits. If you'd like to hear the entire conversations with our guests, please visit charityvillage.com to watch all the video interviews. Charity Village is proud to be the Canadian source for nonprofit news, employment services, funding, e-learning, HR resources and tools, and so much more. Please take a moment to check out our website at charityvillage.com. In our next episode, we'll continue our conversations about new revenue sources with a close look at Bill 216. This piece of legislation aims to loosen controls around how charities operate by amending the Income Tax Act, specifically the requirements that registered charities exercise full direction and control over their own activities when working with partners lacking formal charitable status. At the same time, the bill may force nonprofits to take a hard look at their own structures and practices, especially in terms of how to support diversity and the lack of funding for Black, Indigenous, and other groups seeking equity. Bill 216, its pros and cons, and how it may permanently alter the nonprofit sector. Join us next time on Charity Village Connects.